there. And I love my other cheering sections out there too. It is so good to see you all this morning. I see that you survived the week. Congratulations. How many of you, your feet are wet right now? None of you? Good. I feel like my feet have been wet all week. Yeah, it's just that all the water everywhere. I grew up like in Alaska and then lived on the west side for 15 years. You'd think I would be like a duck. I hate rain. I'm just like, it's better than no rain, but I get tired of it. But you also survived the week. Uh, you, you faced some giants this week. Anybody face some giants this week? Yeah? Okay, so that's code almost for what we talked about last week. So I need to, for those of you who weren't with us, we looked at the story of David and Goliath in the Old Testament where we talked about David facing the giant Goliath when the whole army of Israel was busy hiding in caves and behind rocks. How many of you were tempted to hide behind a rock this week? Come on, let's be honest. I'm raising my hand. So just so you know that I am absolutely a human being, Monday morning I walked into the office. I sat down to start my work right after preaching this, you know, what my Heidi said, I think that was one of your best sermons ever. And I was like, wow, that's pretty big. And, and it was this huge concept of like walking forward in the power of God into his invitation for your life, into the vision that he has called you to. Like this huge idea. And like to remember the lions and the bears, right? The lions and the bears that God had taken care of in the past. Remember how he had worked in your life in the past. And then you walk right up to that giant. And in the power that God has given you, you say, there's no going back. There's only going through. So Monday morning, I walked into the office, and I sat down, and I started to work, and guess what happened? This voice in my head, like, why do you bother coming to work each week? You are probably the lousiest pastor in town, and if not, it just may be in town, like, probably the whole state, and probably the worst pastor in Foursquare. Why do you bother trying to lead these people toward God? They can't hear God through you. You're just a mess. You're a failure. You blow it all the time. And I'm, and I'm sitting there going, yeah, you're right. And the voice got louder. Like, it got louder. You, now you're going, oh, great, pastor's hearing voices. Maybe it is time to find another church. So it, and it got louder, that, this voice, and it, and it, and it became a Goliath-type voice, like, you know, in the, in the text, Goliath says to Israel, he says, I defy the armies of Israel. I defy you. And I was like, that's what's going on. It's like, I defy you to just, just go ahead, plan something this week. Try to write a sermon. Try to write something. Try to, try to pray and hear from God. Try, just try reading your Bible and see how well you do. You're just going to fail. You're just going to want, your mind's going to drift halfway through, and you're going to fall asleep, or you're going to be distracted by this or that, and you're going to focus on the things that you're good at, which is music and preaching. You're going to just focus on those things, and you're going to miss God altogether. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. Except for you know, except for you know, there was this, this time, there was, a, there was a lion. It wasn't as big as you. It wasn't as big as you, but he told me I couldn't do it either. And you know what happened is that the Holy Spirit showed up and did it, God did it anyway. You know, there was a time when a bear showed up, and, and he wasn't as big as you, but you know what? He said the same thing, you're not good enough. And, and you went up there, and I went up there, and I preached anyway. And you know what? God showed up because it wasn't about me, and it wasn't about what I could do. 
It wasn't about my mistakes or failures, but it was about the Holy Spirit working through me and speaking to his people, and God shows up time and time again. So I'm telling you this because I am a human being. I am one of you. I'm not more special than you because I get a microphone and I get to preach each week. I have training. I have a calling, but it doesn't, and it sets me apart for God's work, but it doesn't make me more lovable or more powerful or stronger than you. I am one of you. We struggle together. That's what community is about. This is what community is about. Like, anybody believe that? Community is about the struggle toward God together. It's about walking in the joy and in the pain together toward Jesus and facing the lions and the bears and the tigers and the omis and the witches and the whole menagerie of, of, what was that movie called? It's just gone. Uh, Lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. Wizard of Oz. There it is. It's, It's about facing the whole menagerie of the Wizard of Oz together. It's about facing the giants together, and that's what we do. That's why uh, groups like Audrey and Kelly's are so critically important. If you're not in a small, some sort of small community, if you're not a part of the college group, you're not a part of EHR, or you're not something, get to their house on Thursday night because you need friends that will stand up to the giants with you. But that was a whole nother sermon. So that's where we've been. So we've been talking about pursuing God's vision for our lives. And today we're going to take a counterintuitive turn. So last week we were like, be like David, rush the giant, you know, run out there with your slingshot, take him down. And this week I'm going to tell you, hey, don't be so hasty. Slow down. Wait just a minute. Because the temptation of every believer is to get a vision from God and then to rush toward it as fast as we can. In the Bible, we have King David, which we talked about, who faces the lions and the tigers and the bears and the giants, and he rushes at the giant, and he takes him down in the power of God. But he has a counterpoint. So you have these two characters in the Old Testament who play counterpoint to one another. So there's David, and his counterpoint is King Saul. And that's who we're going to read about today. So if you want to open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 13, we're going to read verses 1 through 14. Now, I'll give you a little bit of context while you're getting there. You can look in your phone if you need to. Just try to turn off the notifications. Don't pay attention to them. Turn off your phone so that you don't get a phone call in the middle. That'd be good. Thank you. Um, so King Saul, if you don't know about who he is, he is the first king of Israel. So for centuries, Israel had been following God and God alone. Like when they came out of the desert after the Exodus, they're following the pillar of fire and stuff for all those years in the desert. And then they come out and God gives them prophets. And the prophets speak on behalf of God. They go and they pray and they hear, kind of like a pastor. And they hear the voice of God and they say to the people, this is what God says we're to do. We're to go this way. We're to go do that thing. Bring the Ark of the Covenant, God's very seat, and bring that with us as we go and fight our battles. But the people kind of get tired of following a prophet who doesn't seem to have any authority. In fact, prophets are often very weird in the Bible. They wear weird clothes. They eat weird foods. They have long hair or short hair. It's just they're weird. And they're like, we're relating to all of these nations around us. You know, we've got all of these people around us, and they've got these kings that they're wearing, like, big crowns, and they're wearing cool clothes, and they're listening to the cool music, and they've got all the money and the power. And people look and they say, hey, your king is not as good as our king. You don't even have a king. And so Israel decides they want a king. 
And they begin to ask God, God, send us a king. God, send us a king. And God's saying, I don't want to give you a king. I want to be your king. And they're like, no, we want a king. We want a king that we can see and that we can touch. And so Samuel is sent by God. Samuel the prophet is sent by God to this man named Saul. And God says to Samuel, I have chosen a king. His name is Saul. And you will see him. And Saul looks at him. He's like, oh, man, he is going to be a good king. He's tall. He's not like that Pastor Jamie fellow. He's tall. He's burly. He's head and shoulders above everybody else. He's beautiful to look at. And he's powerful. This is going to be a good king. And so Saul confirms him as king. And it's this weird story about lost donkeys, and I'm not going to get into that. But there's this whole process where Samuel says to Saul, you're going to be the king. I'm anointing you. I put oil on you. And now, so that you know that this is from God, not just from me, there's going to be all these things that happen. Your donkeys are just down the street that you've been looking for. A guy's got him. He's like, here's the donkeys you're looking for. He'd been looking for weeks. His dad even thought he was dead, actually. He'd been gone so long. His dad thought he was dead. So here's the donkeys. And after the donkeys, this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and there's going to be this moment where God comes upon you, and you are filled with the Holy Spirit and with power, which happens in the Old Testament, not just the New. And then you will be king. And then after that, put your hand to whatever you find to do. And as you're doing that, there's going to be a point in time where I want you to go to this garrison of the Philistines. It's, it's this place. It's like a military base for the Philistine army, who they were fighting over and over again. And when you get there, I want you to wait there for me for seven days. For seven days, wait for me, and I will come, and I will make sacrifices to God, and we're going to connect with God, and then the army can go forward into the battle that I have called them to. Three years that this was going to take. All of the things that Samuel said were going to happen, happen. And that's what brings us up to this point in the story. In chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. So here is what happens after three years. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings too. And he offered the burnt offerings. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offerings, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you didn't come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, great name for a town, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the, Lord, the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God, which, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. And Samuel arose and went from Gilgal, and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to some other place that I can't pronounce. That's okay. So you guys get what happened here? Saul was commanded to wait for seven days after this three-year period for Samuel to come to offer a sacrifice. But Samuel wasn't showing up. He was late. The prophet was late getting to where he said he would be. And Saul looked up and he looked around and you know what he saw? He saw all of his people, all of his army 
leaving. He watched them dribble out the back door. He watched them running off to hide with their families. He watched them slowly slinking away, and he was watching the numbers around him, which gave him a sense of power and a sense of authority and a sense of value. All of these things that he had wrapped up in these people, as they were leaving, he was waiting, and he was getting anxious, and he was getting to begin to hurry and to worry and to stress and then to hustle and to make it happen. And so he ran ahead of God, and he made the sacrifices that weren't his job. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. There's this man who lived in the first century. He's one of the early church's first theologians. And it's really cool because he's one of the church's first theologians. He lived about 150 to 250, somewhere around in that time period. I don't think he lived to be 100, but somewhere in there. And he lived in North Africa. He's from Alexandria, Egypt. But really, he comes out of Africa itself. Christianity in Africa exploded during the first century. A lot of Christians through Africa. In fact, all the Muslim nations, the nations that are Muslim today, were Christian in the first century. Christianity exploded in that culture. And so most of the Christians in that culture were, were black. They were African. And this man named Tertullian was a Berber who was a, a man who kind of roamed. He was a nomad, and he became a Christian and became the church's one of the greatest theologians of all times. And he had a lot to say about what we're seeing Samuel do here in his hurry and his rush to get things done. He said this. He said, it is God's nature to be patient. Then he goes and actually goes back and lists this whole history of God's patience. Like starting from from Adam and Eve to to see that, that creation was broken, but then waiting for generations and generations to bring a salvation plan into place. He, he looks at Moses and how God called Moses to be patient and to be patient waiting for 40 years before he was called to lead the Israelites out. He looked at how Israel was called to be patient for 40 years in the desert waiting for the promised land. Over and over and over again, 300 to 400 years of silence between the New, Old Testament and the New Testament. Patience. God is patient and, and moving slow and working in his time frame, not in our scales. And then Tertullian said this. He said that not only is God patient... But when the Holy Spirit descends upon his people, patience comes along beside her. Those are his exact words. Patience comes along beside her. The word for the Holy Spirit in Greek is actually a feminine word. God is gender free. We just can work either way. And he says, patience comes along beside her. He says, you look at the early church and their persecution. The reason that the church thrived and grew in the first century was because they were patient. They waited on God. They waited for him to to build his timing into their lives and into their work. And as they followed him, they followed patiently. The Apostle Paul even says that it's one of the fruits of the Spirit, right? That when God's Spirit is in us, if we're followers of Jesus, we receive his Spirit, then suddenly in us, a fruit is grown, and one of them is patience. Another is peace, another is kindness, another is goodness and gentleness and self-control. Patience. And then he goes on to say this, that rushing and hurrying are the root of sin. He said it is of the devil himself. He says, think about it. Abraham, he couldn't wait on God's promise. So he and Sarah set up this whole scheme where Sarah, his wife, gives him a, uh, a handmaiden to have a child with. And so they have a baby, and that baby becomes Ishmael, which becomes the father of a whole other nation, which eventually becomes the father of the Philistines, who are Israel's great enemy. He says, think about Moses. Moses, when he found out who he was, could not wait to set his people free and winds up killing an Egyptian guard. 
Israel couldn't wait for Moses to come down from a mountain. Moses had gone up to the mountain to hear from God. God's giving him the Ten Commandments. Like, this is how we work together. And he's up on the mountain, and he's up there a long time. And the people down below are like, I don't think he's ever coming back. We need another God. Somebody get us a God that's working on our time scale. And they build a golden calf. And they start to worship this idol made of gold rather than a living God. And then we come to Saul. Saul, who couldn't wait for Samuel. He skips God's instructions. He's done everything else all the way to the end. This one instruction to wait for Samuel to come. And he threw that out together, and he hurried and rushed right into a meaningless sacrifice. And it cost him his throne. I love King David. Love King David. The Psalms, mostly written by King David. King David takes down giants. Love King David. King David, who, who, who is hiding in caves and still worshiping God. King David, who is, is trusting in God at all times. He is great. Let me tell you something. I relate to King Saul. Does anybody relate to King Saul? Saul and I, I think we've got more in common than David and I, which is kind of sad. Saul, you got David, he's rushing at a giant with a slingshot. That's what David's doing. Then you got Saul who's hiding in a tent and thinking at how much better it would be if David had gone in his armor. And there's ways to do things, right? There's the right way and there's the wrong way, and David is clearly wrong. That's how you fight a proper fight. When David is hiding in caves, he's singing worship songs. Saul, he's busy brooding and being depressed. Hello, that's me. When God calls David to be a king, David spends years waiting. And a lot of it on the run. A lot of it hiding from Saul. Some of it in Saul's service as a musician, a lowly musician, anointed as a king and serving as just live music at the bar. Saul is busy grabbing after his power, consolidating his authority, seeking power, pulling, and and then in the midst of all that, rushing and hurrying and hustling, manipulating situations, and he's turning to anybody but God for advice. Oh my gosh, as I read these things, I was like, oh, I am so much more like Saul than I am like David. When I think about all the mistakes I've made over the past 20 years as a pastor, I realize how much more like Saul I look than like David. I rush, I hurry, and I hustle. I've started my work many times without first spending time with Jesus. I've spoken my mind in a moment instead of waiting, pondering, asking the question, is this loving? I've jumped to conclusions about what people think. I've made plans based on what I thought was best instead of waiting on God. I've not been very good with my schedule. I'll pack things in back to back to back, making no space in between so that I can be fully present for the people in front of me. I rush. I hurry. I want to get the work done. I want to get the checklist finished. And I'm missing God in the midst of it. And that is the primary work that God has been doing in me for the last three and a half years. Slow down. Listen. Hear my voice. I'm inviting you into relationship, and that relationship changes everything. Not just a relationship to God as an idea or a theology or a theological book. Not just as a, as a good idea that makes your life better, but a real living relationship that changes things. And the only way you get to it is, is if you slow down. Slow down was the theme of our Advent season, right? We talked about it for weeks. And I was thinking about it as I was writing the sermon. I'm like, man, these people are probably asking, when are we going to get a new sermon? 
when is he going to preach something new to us? And it occurred to me that uh, many times in my life, I, I've read a book, like read a really good book. I'll read it even two or three times, even study it and write, write sermons on it and things like that, but not have actually fully done it. Have you ever done that? Like to never actually live into something that you've had right in front of you? And I think that many of us are in that place. We hear the word slow down and we think, he's telling us to do less. And I'm not telling you to do less. I'm telling you to slow down and listen and hear the voice of God and his invitation to you to relationship above all things. And to not rush ahead of God and to seek his timing rather than yours. Because I know, based on my mistakes and the things that it has caused in my life, that rushing creates a whole mess. And I want to show you a couple of ways that Saul shows us in this text What happens when we rush? First of all, rushing gives giants' voices power. Okay, think of of Goliath again. Standing there, I defy the armies of Israel. When we're rushing and we're hurrying and we're worried about the outcomes, what happens is, is that God's voice becomes quieter in our ears and that giant's voice gets louder. Saul's attention was not on God in this story. His attention was on what? The people leaving. Did you notice that? He says, I looked around, and the people were leaving me. And I realized that if if I stop, if I I wait for you, not only will the people leave, but the Philistines are going to come to me, and they're going to overrun us here rather than us taking the fight to them. And so I hurried. I forced myself, and I made the sacrifice. His army was dwindling. He became impatient. His calm left him. His sense of of urgency took over, and he began to rush. And when he began to rush, it only made matters worse. Instead of moving patiently and obediently through what God called him to do, as he had done in the past, he hurried and he rushed. And what happened was that voice in his mind that said, if you don't do this now, you're you're toast. It began to get louder and louder and louder until he rushed and hurried and moved outside of God's plan. Francis Chan says this. He says that the work of ministry requires an ongoing trust in the work being done at unseen depths. And I was like, okay, he's writing this to pastors, but the reality is this this is for Christians. To be a Christian, to follow Jesus is to trust that no matter what you see in front of you, no matter what the giant's voice is saying to you, that there is this deep, ongoing, unseen work that God is doing in you. As he says, wait patiently for this to happen. But you've got this vision. It's got to look like this, God. It's got to happen. And if I don't, if I don't move now, it's never going to work. It's going to fall apart. All the pieces are going to disappear. Uh, the giant's going to attack me. I can't take the, the attack to the giant. He's saying, slow down. Slow down. Be patient. Because God is working something in you. God was working something in Saul in that moment, even in Samuel's lateness. I hate it when people are late for a meeting, don't you? I, it's just kind of like... My time's not important, you know. I, I've made space for you, and you're showing up super late. I'm, you know, it, I, I want to give you lots of grace, but it does bother me, and I try not to be late myself. But Saul, he doesn't even just see it as, this is, this is rude. He sees it as God is being blocked. His work is being blocked, and he's not trusting that God is working at the unseen depths. 
when we pursue God, we have to pursue and trust that God is working even when the timing doesn't seem to be working out for us. That God is working and moving and, and making things happen even when we think oh, it's got to happen faster. It's got to get done quicker. We've got to make this happen now. The call of this text is, is this. Don't pursue your dreams. God gives us dreams and visions and invitations. Don't pursue the invitations and the dreams and the visions. Pursue obedient trust. Pursue trust. Saul's counterpoint, David, he wrote this psalm. It's my, one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 27. And I'm going to reference this at the, at the end of each of these little things. David says this, where Saul is, is rushing and hurrying and like, we've got to make this happen now. We've got to get the army out there and attack before Samuel gets here. David says this, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Of what shall I be afraid? Shall I be afraid of the people leaving me? Shall I be afraid of the Philistines attacking me? Shall I be afraid of the giants who are defying me? No. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Pursue trust. Trust that God is your light and salvation. Trust that God is doing a slow and deep work in your heart and in your life, even when you can't see it. Secondly, hustle is an act of insurrection. Insurrection is a big word. They used it in Star Trek one time. It was the whole title of the movie, Star Trek Insurrection. Couldn't even tell you what it's about, but it's a story. Insurrection is when we try to overthrow the government. That's an insurrection, a rising up and an overthrowing of the government. It's like a coup. It's another word we might use to describe it. When we move at a speed beyond God's speed, we are taking the place of God. Saul had a plan to attack. He wanted to go up and attack the Philistines with his army. And in order to get to that plan, he needed to get this sacrifice out of the way. He needed to get this, this religious ceremony out of the way. Saul got up in the morning and said, this afternoon, I want to mow the lawn. Because it was summertime, not wintertime like it is now. He don't want to mow the lawn. But I got to get through church first. So I get up, and I go to church, and I do my thing, and then I rush back home to get back to my plan. And what he did was he utterly missed God in the process and the call to relationship. And he took the place of God. Rather than saying God's plan is first, he said my plan is first. Saul needed the battle to prove to the people that he was, worried, or that he was worthy to be their king. Saul needed that battle to prove that he was strong and powerful. And as the people left, his power was leaving. And so he had to move quickly. And when he did, he took the place of God. He said, my needs over God's needs. My plans over God's plans. My degree over God's plans. My, my time over God's plans. Over a relationship. I think that vision has become one of the greatest addictions in the church. People go from church to church looking for the church with the best and biggest vision. When we come to church on a Sunday morning like last Sunday or the Sunday before, we get really excited and get really passionate and really hopeful when we hear words of vision. And words of vision are good and important. Like, like it says in, the, in uh, Proverbs, without vision, the people wander in the desert and perish. It's true. But it, vision is a little bit like high sugar uh, foods. They give us a big rush and then they leave us hanging in the end. 
When God calls us, he doesn't just call us to vision. He calls us into patient obedience and trust. Brene Brown suggests that hustle is really about working for our worthiness. In other words, we rush and we manipulate and we strive to prove ourselves to others and to ourselves that we are worthy of love and acceptance. We hustle toward the visions that we see so that we can prove to our neighbor that we're good enough, so that we can prove to other churches that we're big enough, so that we can prove to our parents that we are successful, so that we can prove to our spouse that we're beautiful or that we're handsome. We rush and we hurry to prove and we hustle to prove that we're worthy of love to other people. And that's exactly what Saul was doing. He's rushing toward this vision that God gave him, living on this high of I'm king, God has appointed me king, and he missed God in the process, and he hurried because he was trying to prove that he was worthy to his subjects rather than to God. We had this phrase we use in culture, it's called stay in your lane. Anybody familiar with that? Stay in your lane. It means stick with your area of expertise. If you are a uh, theoretical physicist who has never touched an engine in his life, don't pretend to be a mechanic, okay? If you're a mechanic and you only know car parts and how they work, don't try to be a medical doctor. Stay in your lane. When God calls you and invites you into relationship with him, as humans, as Christians, you know, that's probably one of the best things we can do is just stay in our lane. We've got to acknowledge that I'm a human being, and so are you. I am not God. There is a God, and I'm not him. Stay in your lane. Let God be God. Let God determine the speed. Let God determine the pace. Let, let your actions be toward God and obeying him and showing him your love rather than seeking the love and the affection and the, the approval of the people right around you. Stay in your lane. Slow down. Don't rush. Wait on God. Practice obedience. The very definition of success as a Christian is obedience. It's not how many people you've led to the Lord. It's not how many times you've read the Bible this week. It's not how many times you've shared your faith. It's not how many times you come to church. It's not whether that you showed up or didn't show up. You're here. You're in God's presence. Good job. That was enough. God loves you right where you're at. He wants you to obey his calling when he calls you. With David, he would say, don't pursue your dreams. Slow down and pursue obedience. Psalm 27 again. God, you have said, seek my face. So your face will I seek. Teach me your ways, O Lord, so that I may walk in your truth. God, you didn't say seek being king. You didn't say seek success. You didn't say seek uh, the approval of my neighbors. You didn't say seek your lo- the love of your parents. You didn't say seek the love of your spouse. You said seek my face, so your face will I seek. One thing have I asked, and I will seek your face. Lastly, When we hurry and we rush, it actually plugs our ears to the voice of God. The whole purpose of this sacrifice that was in this story is relational. It established a right relationship between God and God's people. Today we live under a new covenant, thankfully, and there was one sacrifice made for all of us on a cross through Jesus Christ. We are all open to a relationship with God. Every single one of us, no matter what we've done, where we've been, or what our family history is, we have direct access to God. That is good news. But the people in this story, they didn't have that access. 
The sacrifice wasn't transactional. We give you a sheep and you show up at our fight. We give you a goat, you come and you make all the enemies fall. It wasn't transactional. It was a, it was a healing. It was a healing the rift between God and man. It was making sure that the people were right with God, that they could have a relationship with God as they went through their life. It was broken and with sin. And so they would do these sacrifices as a way of reconnecting with God, having a new relationship with him so that they could walk in his vision for their life. They would honor God with all that they had, including their possessions, which is why we give. We honor God with our possessions. And then in the, sense, in, in the context of that sacrifice, they had to have a priest because it was showing them that, you know what? There's this relationship with God, but you're completely powerless to have it on your own. And so God sets this metaphor up of a, of a leader who would stand in the gap for the people. It's foreshadowing Jesus much later on. A leader who would stand in the gap for the people and make these sacrifices on their behalf to bring a relationship between God and man together. The sacrificial system was all about relationships. Saul got in there and he saw it as a speed bump to run over and get done to get on with his plan, to get on with his life. He's rushing so fast, he completely misses the relationship with God. How many times have you missed God? Oh, geez, you're like, I was like, this was an interesting theory, and then you just dropped this question on me, and boom. How many times have you missed God? Here's the crazy thing. All the times that you're aware of are probably less than a fraction of the times that you really have. Because we're moving so fast we, we, we just completely miss him. We, we, we don't hear him. This is the truth that, that God is always, always speaking. Always. In every moment, in every situation. Just think about it. In your college classes, college students, God is speaking to you. Like, it's a professor up there talking. The professor is a complete atheist. Doesn't believe in God whatsoever. And he is teaching you knowledge. And in that knowledge, there's an invitation from God. God is speaking to you. In your work, you're going along and you got a, you got a co-worker that's, that's he's, he's really making it hard for you, you know? <laughs> Looking at Casey, smiling at me. He's my co- her co-worker makes it hard for her. And you get, you get anxious and you get upset. And God is speaking in that, that, that strain and that tension. God is coming and he's saying, look, we can bring peace here. Look, we can do, we can do some work here. You're trusting in yourself. There's all kinds of things God's saying in that. In your music, whether it's Christian or not Christian, whether it's movies, Christian or not Christian, whether it's books, Christian or not Christian, if it's pain, if it's triggers, if it's family, if it's friendships, if it's enemies, if it's friendemies, if it's joy, if it's pain, if it's pleasure, it's anxiety, depression, fear, all of these things, God is speaking. He may not be bringing them to you. God does not bring anxiety. God does not bring depression or fear, but he will speak to you through them. If you find yourself anxious you got to be asking yourself, what is God's invitation for me in this? Trust me. God is always speaking, and that's why the most critical thing that Christians can learn is to listen. We did a whole bunch. Like Heidi and I have been talking about this a lot lately. We did a whole sermon series on listening. We read a book like three, four times on listening. We did a marriage retreat this last a couple weeks ago, and one of the first things we talked about was listening. And we realized, man, we've done all this work, and we're way better at listening. But we still don't listen well all the time. God is always speaking, and we're not hearing because we're rushing and hurrying toward our goals, our dreams, or even God's goals and God's dreams and God's visions, but we're doing it at our pace. Uh, 
Jeff and Angie Fierstein, there's a family in our church here, they have a convertible car, and it's really fun. And they one time loaned it to, loaned it to me to take Isaac, our son, out for his birthday because he thought it was really cool. And we put the top down, and we went driving down the highway. And, like, I, well, it was, we went from zero to 60 as fast as we possibly could, but we kept it right at that edge so I didn't get a ticket. You guys know about that, yeah? So you put the top down on one of these cars, and if you don't have a convertible car, you can, you can relate to this because you roll down your windows when it's hot, right? What happens when the top's down on the car or the windows are down and you're doing 60 miles an hour? That's all you hear, right? You just hear the wind. And so like, it's sunny out. You got the top down. You got your windows down. So you got to turn the tunes up, right? So you turn the tunes up, but you got to turn them up really loud so that you can hear them, right? You get going down the highway, and there's the wump of the wind, and the sun's in your hair, and, and it's just a beautiful day, and you got the music up really loud, and then you stop, and you get out of the car, and what happens? You ever notice with your ears what happens? We move at a speed as though we were in a convertible car in this, this culture. And sometimes we get so anxious, we have to turn up the music to other things. We can't hear the voice of God. Have you ever tried looking out the window when the car is going 60 miles an hour? Look out to the side. How easy, easy is it to see those things that are really close to you? Right here on the side of the road, there's a pig halfway to Dusty, and it's made of metal, and it looks like a big mailbox, and it's a pig. Most of you probably never noticed it because you drive right past it, and you don't even see it. It's just this pink blur that goes right past. God operates in the margins of our lives, on the sides of the road. And he's out there speaking to us, and we're going so fast we can't hear, we can't see, and we miss him. And then when we stop, because we've numbed ourselves to the anxiety, to the fear, to the depression, with all sorts of things, and that's the music in the car, and the whomping in our ears of the speed at which we move, we get out of the car, and all of that noise, it follows us. And we can't hear God. In the Old Testament, to hear God is not just to recognize that there is a voice speaking to you, but to obey. You haven't heard until you've obeyed. Saul rushes. He's been hurrying. He's been hurrying his whole life, and he blows right past God. He disobeys. He misses the relationship with God. And when he did, everybody around him also missed God. And that's what makes listening and obeying and trusting Jesus so important because it's not just about you. It's about the whole community of believers. And it's about the whole community of non-believers that you're connected with. Don't pursue your dreams. Slow down and pursue relationship. David said, One thing have I asked the Lord, and that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and that I may gaze upon his beauty. Saul says to pray, or Paul says to pray without ceasing. Impossible, except for that it's not, because prayer is about relating to God and having a ongoing conversation with him. Pursue a relationship, not your agenda. For all of these things, for his rushing, his hurrying, his missing God, his missing the relationship with God, his missing, his, his making it so that everybody around him missed that relationship with God, God rejects Saul as king. Saul goes on being king for a time. It looks good. He's got a throne. He's got an army. But God's not in it. He's moved on to somebody else a man after his own heart. The very thing that Saul feared most, losing his kingdom and his throne and his people, became his destiny because he hurried beyond God's timing. So my question for you to consider this morning, 
is where do you need to slow down? Where do you need to slow down so that you can trust that God's working? Where do you need to slow down so that you can actually make a step of obedience rather than just hearing the good idea that God had? Where do you need to slow down so that you can relate to Jesus? I'm going to give you a minute just to ponder and think about that, and then we'll come back together and close the sermon. Where do you need to slow down? God, I thank you for your goodness and mercy. I thank you that you are kind and forgiving. I thank you that you don't stop coming to us, that you don't stop speaking to us, even when we're moving so fast we can't hear you, even when our ears are ringing from the noise of our lives. And God, I thank you that you don't come with a heavy hand, with a uh, sort of, of justice to us for not having listened to you, but that you come with mercy and grace and peace and a continual invitation to be in relationship with you. God, your invitation to us in this moment is to slow down, to hear your voice, to trust you, to obey, and to be in relationship with you. And we know that here in this space, it's really easy to hear that voice, but when we walk out these doors, uh, the noise of homework, the noise of, of housework, the noise of children, the noise of preparing for tomorrow, it's going to be turned up pretty loud. And so, God, we, we ask that you, in your power and your grace and in your goodness, that your Holy Spirit would descend upon us and bring peace and patience along beside and help us to slow down enough to hear your voice, to hear your voice calling us, to hear your voice teaching us and leading us and guiding us, healing us and loving us. God, may this church be a church marked by patience, patience with one another, not, not worried whether the person next to us is, is what I hope that they will be someday. Not worried that the pastor maybe is still growing and learning, but giving grace along the journey. 
God, may this church be a, a church marked by the patience as we become and follow and, and lean into what you have for us in a new season. Patience with the city, God, as you lead us to love it. Patience with one another as we become the new family of Jesus. Patience and grace to, to fail and to try and to fail and to try. God, I pray that you would bring hope in the midst of that, to trust in your slow work that is taking place deep beneath the surface of our lives. As we take a deep dive into the, to the, to the story of our lives, the story of our families, and we discover freedom, and we discover health, and we discover wholeness in these places, that we would hear you calling to us, this is the way in which you should go, walk in it. And above all, Jesus, we pray that we would be a reflection of you and your goodness. We wouldn't rush from thing to thing, but that we would walk at your speed. We wouldn't see people as speed bumps, but that we'd see them as your children. That we wouldn't see the obstacles to our dreams as uh, impossible giants, but we'd see them as opportunities for your work in our lives. God, we give you these things in trust and in hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in the grace of our Lord this morning to walk patiently toward the vision that he has for you, knowing that Jesus loves you more than he loves the dream he has for your life. And Heidi and I do too. Amen. Thank you.